Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of BDO. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Very good, thanks. So we're, there's a bit of a theme developing over the last couple of weeks. We're talking a lot about AI, artificial intelligence. Um, there's a lot going on with ChatGPT4 and all kinds of automation going at hyperspeed. Uh, why are you interested in, in this topic, Mike? Well, I, I think there's a number of issues. One is obviously the the practical application of of, of AI and machine learning as we go forward within uh, my profession or our clients and everybody that we're dealing with. I think there's a huge uh, side to to all of this that is going to increase efficiency and, and change the landscape that we do for a lot of data entry and base level uh, employment. Uh, but that also brings up the whole ethical conversation ultimately at the end of the day is what is going to happen to people that have been working these jobs doing data entry uh, tomorrow morning if AI kicks in and how do we, excuse the term, but retool uh, their skills in order to find uh, a way so that they're no longer uh, put out on the streets. And, and you know the reality is, is we've had people working with us for 30, 35 years and we see it in a lot of our clients. These people have been loyal, committed, hardworking, they're through thick and thin and all of a sudden their tech skills become uh, uh, you know, outdated, uh, what do you do with them? And, and I think there's this whole ethical side. I mean, I can get into, as I know you have before, in terms of where does the government get involved in, in ethics. I'm just looking at it from, from a corporate perspective. We'll talk a bit about ethics on the program today with Edward Coe of Melly AI. So last week on the program, we were talking about a uh, Hippoc, which is a, uh, a designer app. It uh, designs ads with AI, uh, you know, exponentially faster than humans can uh, produce those iterations for online advertising. This one is document processing. That's what Melly does, and they're out of the transportation sector. So having spent some time uh, in my early 20s working as a broker, there's so much paperwork, Mike. I mean, paperwork might be the, most of the job in some cases, filling out bills of lighting and, and customs forms and all of that. Very complicated, very prone to human error. I certainly made those errors myself, but something that is uh, ripe for automation. Most definitely, and I think we're going to see this in a lot of the service industries over time, where we are going to be replacing a lot of uh, a lot of the data entry type, whether that's the accounting firms, the law firms, the engineering firms. I think there are so many aspects to uh, the application to all of this. So it goes back to the question you asked me before: Why am I interested? Because this is this is an area of efficiency and proactivity that I think we all need uh, we all need to get to. And let's get right to our current events topics because it's all about AI and how businesses uh, need to react. And if you're not thinking about AI or technology, you have to start. Um, you know, it's it's pretty much it's time. Things are going to happen very very quickly, even in the coming months, as you'll find out on the program today. So this piece from uh, Harvard Business Review: Generative AI will change your business. Here's how to adapt. And so they have a couple of examples um, that that we should pay attention to. Uh, one is bring data together. So make sure that the data you're collecting is sound and is working with parts of your business. They say the rules layer, the so-called rules layer, becomes even more critical. What is that? It's basically what you tell the AI to do. And that in itself, Mike, is an incredibly challenging thing to master because you have to understand how AIs work. You can't treat it like a human being who you're having a conversation with. You have to treat it like a machine. And, and the inputs, what you put into it, really matters. 
well, the old garbage in, garbage out, right, was what we learned <laughs> since the beginning of computers. Um, I, I think the reality of what we're living today is it follows, this is going to fall under corporate governance and, and, and this whole discussion of how do you use the AI, what is the information you're trying to extract? I mean, bringing the data together is only part of the exercise. Knowing what data to bring together in and of itself is a massive, massive challenge. You know, some people hear the word AI, they, uh, they hear machine learning and they're like, well, we can throw everything onto the, you know, the proverbial desk and, uh, and it's all going to process it. I mean, there needs to be controls. There needs to be a governance exercise. Everybody needs to be on board in order. It just doesn't work if one person is using the AI and somebody else is still going manual. And the inputs are so important because if you get those inputs wrong, if you're looking for a, a parameter that's just slightly off, it'll give you the AI an answer with great confidence and great detail that is totally wrong or totally down the, the rabbit holing down the wrong direction uh, that, uh, that that you set out for. So another one they, they advise from HBR here is prioritize safety, fairness, privacy, security, and transparency. In other words, ethics and AI ethics will come up on the program today because Edward Coe uh, has been thinking about that and about how to automate responsibly. I think it's part of the whole ongoing debate right now and maybe the, the, the breaks on the chat GPT discussion, right, is this whole exercise of, you know, if you, if, you, if you direct it in a certain way, how much does it come back? And until such time as machine learning has populated a large enough database and its ability to extract information from what you're telling it, so basically protect yourself from yourself, um, we got a long way to go in terms of how we're going to govern this. There's a lot of fear of AI in general, and uh, you wanted to bring up this piece from Inc.com um, on fear and, and fear experienced by entrepreneurs. You can't be creative, and certainly I, I would add even innovative if you're fearful. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the, the employer's role has to be to create an environment that is, uh, you know, that allows for mistakes, it allows for learning in the exercise. I mean, obviously, if we're going to move to the technology side of things, we are going to eliminate some of those mistakes. But you, you, still, need, uh, you still need an environment where ultimately, at the end of the day, there, 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 there's a safety zone in terms of what that means. Uh, the other exercise in terms of being, I guess, being fearful is we live in a political climate that is very dicey right now now, uh, between what we're seeing in Washington and Ottawa and the behavior of our politicians, as well as uh, DEI and, and everything else that, that's going around, a lot of people are very concerned about you know, how they bring up an idea or how they reference an idea or, or what to do with a certain idea for fear of offending somebody. And there's got, again, it, it's, it's a governance discussion here in terms of what's safe, what's an, what's, what is fair to talk about. And you have to find that balance between being fair to people as well as not crushing people's uh, uh, creative spirit and, and inventiveness. Uh, more here from Inc.com, why you'll need to become a different kind of leader, especially in times of crises. They give some advice, and one I like a lot is remind your team that you've all been here before, or you, perhaps humanity or, you know, society, uh, and survived and thrived. So, you know, perseverance or the buzzword was resilience, very important. Yeah, resilience. I mean, it's a word we've used over and over again during during and coming out of COVID. Um, but I think the you know the, the discussion of being a different kind of leader it, it's taking on a new role. I mean, we again, I go back to that comment of Ottawa and and, and uh, Washington. The behaviors that we see on an ongoing basis in public are, are really not something that we should be mimicking. And, and ultimately, you know, you could say that about your sports leaders. You could say that about 
politicians as you could say it about actors and actresses the the, the ability to use social media to get a point out uh, has often lost the uh, the human side of, of the way we're doing things and and the leadership skills I think today fall more and more back on corporates Canada and corporate America to start leading the way um, because I think too many other people are just worried about a public presence and an image and, and we need to start setting the example as business owners uh, for that environment of leadership and that you know passion that that whole getting things done uh, empathy uh, all of these things need to be coming uh, and I think more and more so from you know lower levels of government where people aren't just there for politics reasons and from the corporate world and and, and our communities and, and that is going to play a huge role in that type of leadership if you know you can't go to your business every day and not think what is your impact on the people around you a couple of more newsier items that we should get to uh one is that uh the cra canada revenue agency uh, they're not on strike a lot of media have been reporting that they voted for a strike mandate which is to say they can go on strike at any time whenever their leaders feel it is uh strategically important to them yeah, you know, I mean, I think that it, it it throws a huge cloud, and obviously there's a timing on all of this being, uh, you know, tax time at the end of April. Uh, the biggest fear factor associated from the union's ability to carry some leverage is obviously going to be during a period of the biggest volume. People are looking for their refunds. People are looking to file tax returns. So there's no doubt that, uh, you know, this is this is a good political time to, to threaten strike, whether they will or they won't, and whether the government would step in and override with a, with a no-strike mandate I guess remains to be seen so we're uh, you know the, 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 the we're the 15th of April and uh, you know there's uh, 15 days left so we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, they push this out if, if if they need to go in that direction in the event of a strike w what's the move there for entrepreneurs uh, do you accelerate some of your submissions or, or can you hang back a little bit I think it's all going to depend on, on, on what the terms of the strike are. I mean, if the terms are such that they say they've extended a deadline because of the strike, then obviously you have a new deadline. Then, you know, we are dealing in, in, in Quebec, obviously, where you've got two different governments involved. Uh, would Quebec follow suit or is Quebec going to still impose on April 30th? So there's, there's a few things to play into this that don't make it as as simple as everybody uh, thinks going on strike is. But let's just hope they can they can find middle ground to at least defer it out uh, I don't think anybody who's, uh, uh, forget those working in the profession, I, most of those people, and there's a lot of people out there that count on refunds or processing their tax returns in order for GST, QST credits and, and everything else and family allowance uh, that need to get their tax returns in. This uh, study upcoming from uh, BDC and uh, Juniper Consulting, a Montreal consultancy, they're going to take a look at the trends affecting Canadian businesses and retail manufacturing, construction, so post-COVID, a labor shortage, climate change, etc. Uh, you're, you're looking forward to this, uh, this deep dive, Mike. Yeah, you know, I, I, my, my biggest area of interest, I mean, once we get outside of the technology field, is this whole discussion of, of manufacturing. I mean, uh, for years, uh, North America pushed its manufacturing offshore. Uh, COVID started to see it come back. Uh, just out of pure necessity when you couldn't support the, uh, um, you know, the supply chain or logistics and everything that was involved. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Retail, no doubt, uh, e-commerce and, uh, you know, and shopping online has changed the face of, of bricks and mortar from a retail perspective. Uh, you know, how is that going to change? Is everybody going to turn into a warehouse or are people still going to want to shop? Who knows what that's going to look like? Um, but I think really the manufacturing sector to me is, is, is the big one going forward 
forward. And, and I think that'll feed into technology and everything else in terms of how do we com become competitive on a North American scale back in an area where labor, and we all know labor costs in, in North America are astronomically high compared to a lot of other, certainly Eastern Bloc countries. I'm really curious what the study will find about Montreal's uh, office space situation downtown. What are you seeing, Mike? Are, are offices filling up again uh, anywhere near the degree uh, that they were uh, pre-COVID? No, I think we're we're still teetering. There's been a number of larger organizations who have started to want to bring people back three days a week. You've got uh, certain people that are refusing. It's it's going to be a bit of a stalemate, I think, for, for a little while as this continues to go on. Uh, Goldman Sachs recently uh, put out a study that's talking about, you know, the impact on uh, commercial real estate and how that's going to maybe create what we were hoping for in a soft landing from a recession to in a much harder landing. Uh, so I think uh, nobody at this point really seems to have their, their finger on it. I mean, if you look at the stock market, the stock market normally prices itself six months out. It's almost priced itself 12 months out at this point. So, you know, a lot of those things that we were so used to just relying on for uh, our basis of judgment going forward uh, are a little muddy these days. And let's get right to our guest. His name is Edward Coe. He is the co-founder of Melly AI. They do intelligent document processing. Edward, welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Thank you for having me today. So first, uh, give us a, a better definition. What is Melly AI? Melly AI helps transportation and logistics company to remove uh, the document process, the manual document processing in-house. And the technology that we use is to call intelligent document processing, basically using artificial intelligence to remove the fact that you need to use a template to remove, uh, to extract doc data from documents. Interesting concept. I live in the accounting world and this transformation of documentation into machine readable uh, information and usable data is, uh, shall we say, lost on an awful lot of people. And I don't want to just point it in, uh, in, in a direction of age. I think it, it, it's the concept of understanding. So maybe give us a little more of an insight of, you know, how, how does this actually work? It Basically, it's extracting information, you're putting it into machine readable form, and you're doing something with it, which basically it's the use of, uh, of an individual doing data processing and the human error. Absolutely, Mike. You know, um, I saw that firsthand when I used to work for a freight forwarder. The documents coming in is what we call semi-structured. So what it means is that the document type is the same, but the format looks different. So I'll give you an example. A commercial invoice, you know, you can find information such as date, PO number, but they can be located on the top of the document or the bottom of the document. And on top of it, there's permutation of the words. So uh, expediter could be shipper, could be exp dot and so on. So that's why the human is still in the loop when receiving these documents to, you know, analyze, understand, interpret and structure the data into a spreadsheet at this point, right? Or a system per se. Uh, what artificial intelligence can do is that we, we built algorithm to be able to extract these information independent to how it looks like the document as long as we can classify the document to be, let's say, a bill of lading or a commercial invoice, uh, we use our algorithm and a taxonomy to get in and pick up the right information, structure it in the right way, and pass it back to the system so that we eliminate completely the uh, manual document processing and data entry. Eliminating the, the, I guess, the human touch point of documentation and, and, and data entry, but they're still there to review, right? So you basically up the, uh, the, the, the quality and up the uh, education level of an individual working on these documents. Correct. So, you know, when you think about data entry, it, people takes a lot of time to type things out. We remove that time. But what we do is that by removing the low value tasks, they will become auditors 
of the documents of the extraction and then simply could put a proof into the system. Uh, just a quick example, in a team of 10 people, we eliminate, I would say, 80% of the work. So two people stay behind just looking at the documents coming in, the data extracted, and say approve or reject. I mean, obviously, you've done studies, you've gone through this exercise. What's the effect on speed and reliability and accuracy? That's a very good question. So, you know, in AI, in artificial intelligence, you need to, you know, train a model with a lot of documents in order to get, you know, good prediction and good accuracy that you mentioned earlier. Um, what we have done in the past is that we, we put two years of work together with tons of documents to train. So right now we reach to a benchmark of 90% plus, you know, as uh, day one. But as you as much as you're using this, uh, as long as you're using the system with time, you the, the percentage goes higher. With, um, so it gets to 95% plus, really just automating the entire uh, business process uh, by removing the manual work. Concept of machine learning. Right, the machine the machine gets better at the more it processes. That is correct because the interface captures, you know, uh, let's say the extraction contains an error, the uh, auditor makes a correction and t- tells the system where is that correction is made from, you know, in the PDF document received, and from that the machine picked it up the uh, the error and with a lot of errors because machine learning leads a lot of data, it's basically advanced stats with a lot of data. Once we get to that level, they can pick up patterns and then figure out, oh, what was wrong and make corrections to the model. Thing is basically the human equivalent to muscle memory. Correct. I, I always compare that to a baby. You know, you're training a baby to start you know, walking, well, it's crawling and then walking and then running. Well, it's the same thing with AI. You have to really train them with a lot of work. Edward, I used to work in my early 20s as a transport broker, and I found that people in the industry, just everyone hated the paperwork. Everyone hated filling out bills of lighting. There was always mistakes. I made mistakes doing that. Um, this, uh, this might be scary for some people in the industry, but it actually lightens the load, the administrative load, so people can focus on what they care about, which is the operations and getting things to places. You're absolutely right, Dan. Uh, I think we're part of the you know, the first wave of innovation. Um, traditionally, the um, transportation logistics industry has been always been underserved by technology, let's put it this way. Um, so as a new player coming into the market, bringing a new technology to solve a very traditional problem takes a lot of uh, work in education and change management. So the early adopters now that is coming with uh, on board with us, they're benefiting now from what we do, but it's a, it's a head investment to do. But in the long run, I truly believe that this is going to remove all the manual work required in people into cubicles and moving these people. It's not to fire them, but instead moving them to higher value tasks, supplier, you know, management, customers, relationship. All these things can be done with the context of a labor shortage. This is definitely the way to go. Have you thought about environmental concerns as well? Because in the transport industry, when you do make a little mistake on a paperwork, it costs kilometers, it costs idling time. I can tell Dan that you're coming from the industry. So the answer is definitely yes. You know, um, we always provide what we call the indirect benefits uh, other than the direct benefit of, you know, productivity. The indirect is the removal of errors, uh, penalties, wait time at the border. You know, if you make one mistake in the customs entry, for example, and eventually when we collect enough data, we'll build business intelligence and further optimizing, let's say the route, uh, removing, uh, reducing the number of empty hall, and so on. So I think, you know, everything starts with data. Data is sitting in currently a PDF, a dead document. Our job is to extract that, make it live, and then people can use the data to make better decisions. So I pick up the phone, I call Melly, or I go online and I email you. 
how, how do we get started? How, what what is the what is needed? What are the? I mean, are we talking about purely software and a scanner? Is that as simple as it gets? Well, uh, no, we're we're a SaaS uh, platform, so we're a service. Um, you know, a service online. Everything is on cloud. So our clients, when they're interested, they contact us and tell us about their pain point with the paperwork and the manual work. And from there, we ask them a few questions, such as what document types do you receive? What system do you currently use? Uh, and from there, how many people is using the system? So we calculate the business case. We get them on board. The first thing that they receive is our platform access to a platform to a smart inbox to replace their traditional Outlook inbox where we receive emails. Uh, in our inbox, the smart inbox, the document gets processed automatically. The auditor says yes or no. And if it's yes, then it goes back to their ex uh, the existing system that they use for operations, such as a transportation management system, a TMS, or ERP per se. What was your experience with some of the the transport industry software? Uh, thinking back to to my days, uh, DispatchMate was a big one. Um, what were what were some of the holes in some of those old software programs that that you've uh, you've plugged? I think the older generation of TMS, transportation management systems, they are very silo and they were built, uh, you know, for a specific need, you know, when clients such as transporter or brokers needed something, they have a team of a software, basically a boutique shop that builds the, the software for them. I think we're going to an evolution now. I think the, the largest of the TMS now, they're developing, I guess, more a standard way and a global way of doing things. So that was an advancement, I would say, between the period of 2015 to 2020. And now we're adding new modules, such as our tool, as part of the marketplace or API connectivity to them, adding capability to the current TMS world. So I think it's getting much, much better. And um, for the transporters that are listening, you know, there are really good tools to ping your drivers. There's a lot of nice AI tools now, not just us, that's going to enhance productivity. And I really highly suggest to, for them to talk to their, uh, the vendor suppliers to, to see you know, what, what, what's in store for the next few years. The, the website brings up a couple items that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to get to after the break. Uh, we've talked about customs and, and marine port and transportation, but you also service the food safety compliance side of the industry. And, and, and that kind of fascinated me as to where we go with that. And, uh, you know, saying a word, uh, working in transport uh, in my early 20s when I was a student, no relation to the big Delmar people, for the record. I get that question a lot. Um, <laughs> I wish. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that I was um, struck with at the time was just how there was a desperate need of, to digitize and a lot of programs that were trying to do it. Um, not really working very well. I remember hacking one myself and ended up sort of doing this combination with Microsoft Word to, to, to increase efficiency. It was kind of a mess. What, what was your aha moment working in the industry? What problem were you faced where you, you just were overwhelmed with the paperwork? Well, of course, Dan, and I was actually going to ask you about Delmar because I did work for Delmar International in the past. And in fact, I found the problem over there when we, they receive over a million you know, pages of document annually to be processed. So the aha moment actually, you know, it came in two times. So you know, back in 2017, when I saw the problem, I, you know, I took on myself, like, you're, like you, like what you said, trying to find, you know, short-term solution to resolve it. And we did, you know, in terms of accelerating productivity, but the data extraction piece was still not there. And the second aha moment is back in 2020, when finally, I would say artificial intelligence is accessible, uh, not just in terms of cost, but also in terms of resources. And that there was an opportunity to, you know, create something for this industry. 
So the first thing I did was I contacted back my previous employer and say, listen, do you still have this problem? And the answer was yes. It's like, all right, let's, uh, we have a problem to work on. And, you know, fast forward a few years, there, there we are in commercializing this product. Are they a customer now? Uh, not yet. I hope. Uh, shout out to uh, the people at Del Mar <laughs> International and happy to discuss with them. I'll, I'll talk to my family over there and get them to give you a call. Exactly. <laughs> Good connection, Edward. I'm not going to hold my breath from Dan's help. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. You said that you know that 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 aha moment was 2020. Any of that related to COVID and and the changes that were going on, or was this just the progression of AI? I think for my story, it was more a progression of AI. Uh, I was looking at the perspective of the accessibility of a technology that we can use to solve this problem, and how much do we develop it? Uh, back in 2017, we were very limited in terms of tools. And if we want to develop what we develop in 2020, 2021, it will cost a lot of money. And still as of today, if you reach out to these, um, I would call it these boutique shops, AI shop, big ones, but boutique ones that customizing a solution for you, we're still talking about anywhere from a quarter to a half a million dollar project here. What we have you know, done ourselves is to create like a standard tool that we can deploy faster and cheaper for these uh, transportation and logistics companies. That feeds right into my next question, which is the ROI calculator on your website. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the first question most people ask when you move into the technological space is, how much is this going to cost me? What's it going to save me? And is there such a huge upfront cost that I, you know, I, I have to do this properly over so many years before I get my money back? Uh, how do you guys work through this? Well, that is one of the reasons why we put up the ROI calculator publicly on our website so that the... Um, the prospects, the leads, they have the first hand, you know, onto the cost of implementing our solution. I think, you know, um, I've given many webinars and education piece on implementing AI projects. And I think one thing that people need to understand is this is implementing uh, an innovative technology and not a mature technology. So, for example, if you're implementing an SAP, you know, a, a large ERP system that's going to cost you, let's say, $2 million, you know exactly the return because the software has been already well-developed and you know the expect expected result getting out of the, the technology. With innovations like us, you know, we see that there is an end goal. There is an objective to prediction and getting a better prediction over time. There is an investment for a, that the early type of, um, of investment. The first six months is going to be a lot of work to get together. And at the end, the benefits really, it's not linear, it's exponential. It outweighs all the investments coming in. But that requires the, um, I would say, a governance uh, management team buying into innovation. And it's a different ballgame compared to implementing regular, you know, mature technology. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting point. I mean, we, we've watched the AI component work in, feed in a little bit into our industry as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's some days I think it's less about how good the AI is and, and, and how committed the team is to get it off the ground and running. And, and, you know, whether that's an age gap or whether that's an understanding gap, uh, the, the human element, uh, and I guess maybe that's why we're trying to take it out, but the human element in all of this in terms of buy-in and execution, it can't be a flavor of the day. It's got to be a consistent approach to moving forward. Definitely. And think about environments that unionize, right? A Port of Montreal, for example, one of our clients definitely is, you cannot really take a job away simply by saying, listen, there is a technology out there. But I think Port of Montreal is one of the, the earliest, you know, they, they have a good vision. 
the new CEO is putting initiatives in place to implement innovative technology. They created an innovation lab that really just, it's a playground for startups like us, testing out the concept, using proof of concepts, making sure that the technology is correct, well well trained, and then implemented to production, really just saves a lot of hassle and remove a lot of friction for the change management piece when the technology is ready to be put in production. I think you hit the key word before, which is this whole discussion of, of, of governance. And we usually think of corporate governance in, in terms of overrunning and, and overseeing an organization. In this case, it's a process. And if you don't have it in place, uh, that possibility of success is, is de- d- dramatically decreased. Absolutely. Just not just government, you know, even private companies, when they, you know, even though if they're not unionized, they are concerned about the investment and where it goes in terms of the expected results, the expected ROI, the return on the investment. So I guess, you know, what I want to bring here to the table today is that speaking from the Quebec perspective, uh, there's a lot of funding right now to help companies to accelerate in their digital transformation, including implementation of AI. There's a lot of program. The federal budget also came out. A lot of acts, you know, putting a lot of emphasis on implementation technology, you know, showcasing that we're the best in the world of implementing AI. So I encourage these um, companies that are looking for new, you know, implementation of technology to look that is actually funding program to de-risk your investment in, in terms of financial, you still need to put the hard work, but definitely it's it's a much easier talk when half of your risk financially is taken out away for, before you start. Point. Do you guys actually help on the consulting side of all of this when some when somebody says, hey, you know, you can go to the government for this, there's these programs, are you providing that assistance or do you team up with somebody? Yes, as an um, innovator, I would say for a new technology consultation or um, advices that we have to give to the enterprise before they make a decision is it's critical so we know and we you know we we're very deeply ingrained in the ecosystem in here in montreal uh we have a lot of supporters around us from national research canada to minister de l'economie Innovation energy to business accelerators such as next ai and centec uh, we have a lot of resources that we know we can leverage to turn, um, you know, an idea to a project for companies. So definitely, uh, you know, in our discovery call, we always cover that with our clients and we're, we want their success. So it's not only taking the money away and just trying to buy a product. We need help and they need help as well. So we try to work together. Let's look far into the future now. There's a lot of automation coming to transport, of course, driverless trucks, eventually driverless ships. That's all going to happen pretty slowly, I think, for for safety reasons especially. But it is happening. And are you considering that? Are you considering Melly and how it ties into the whole experience from ordering to processing to the actual logistics and shipping of it? Great question, Dan. You know, in my last webinar, I spoke about, you know, AI as a whole ecosystem and what Melly AI is talking really into natural language processing and computer vision. There are other companies that specialize into, let's say, autonomous vehicles or, uh, you know, camera surveillance and all and all that. That's another domain, but we work together in the ecosystem. So we know these players and we don't, we're not shy to recommend some of our peers, you know, to our clients as well. Port of Montreal is a good example. Uh, so a couple of companies working with them. So definitely we're not the solution for everything. There's no silver bullet to this. It has to be a combination of different technology. But what I want to bring to table today, speaking to these uh, companies, is that it really you really need to define your business need first. Because there's a lot of solutions out there, but if it doesn't fit your pain point, your business needs, 
it's an investment that's not going to be worth the, the return. So very important to figure out the business case before we start. Mike, I was thinking of uh, letter tech, for example, and sort of the, the, the more on the ground AI and how that can integrate into products like Melly. I mean, eventually the whole, the whole system is going to be automated from, from end to end. You know, the application across many industries is, is huge. And, you know, you look at the labor component, you look at the staffing shortages that we're all having, you look at the human error associated with so much data entry. Uh, I, I'm actually, you know, looking forward to, to seeing this. You know, I'm 55, so in theory, there's another 10 years left in this profession. I'd love to see this take hold long before I had decided to, 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 to hang up my calculator. And a couple more minutes now, Edward, I have a couple more follow-up questions on, on AI. Do you think about the ethics of it? Obviously, you know, a lot of people work in transport, uh, very hard work. Trucking is probably the most difficult job I've ever encountered, really. Uh, truckers work really long, hard hours. Um, those manual labor jobs aren't going anywhere soon. They're very difficult to phase out. Do you think about the, uh, a responsible phase out of that of those jobs as you, as you help automate the industry? Absolutely. So, you know, it's a, it's a one of the biggest question. And in fact, I think you all saw the news, you know, the, the tech giants has signed to put a pause right now on AI development, such as technology, such as ChatGPT, because it can go really right and it can go really wrong as well. Um, from our perspective, first of all, Melia has signed the Montreal Convention of uh, Ethical Development of AI. So we know how important it is in terms of developing the, the ethical way of AI. And I would say, fortunately for what we do, that the development that we have to do in AI doesn't really have hard decisions. So example, a autonomous vehicle, if it needs to stop, if you need to hit someone, who to hit, if there's a, if there's a problem, something that you've probably seen online, that's an ethical question that we don't have to face you know, with our uh, software. However, I still believe that it impacts people with the implementation of our technology. And we're here to also collaborate, right? With, and we share our experience, how the, the good, the bad, the ugly of our previous implementation with other clients. And there's no, again, no silver bullet to it. We're gonna look at case by case, but obviously, you know, we're trying currently to solve the labor shortage issue. So I think at this moment, for the next two to three years, we're going to the right direction. That's awesome. I'm I'm really glad to hear that you signed the Montreal Declaration, um, Mike. The, there's a Montreal AI Ethics Institute. This goes back about a decade here in Montreal. Uh, just the other week, I was interviewing Abhishek uh, Gupta, who is the the founder of it, on CJD. I was filling in on uh, on Easter uh, Easter weekend. And uh, it's such an important thing, I think, for companies to to have a sense of ethics and to have a guideline when they're going into these adventures. Because then, you know, when you when you're faced, right, Edward, with some with some moral dilemmas, you're, you're going to know what to do. Tell me about the experience of working with the the AI ethics work group and uh, and how you incorporate this. What I what I what I hope to be a very important declaration uh, into your work. Yeah, of course. So. I think I would say I would give a shout out to Next AI Canada, and they really showed us the path of the development, ethical development of AI. So, as a very young startup, you know, our goal was to optimize productivity without really thinking about ethical, uh, the ethics of it. Uh, through the program of Next AI in Montreal, and they do this once a year to recruit new startups into their cohort. Uh, they gave us a sense of what the impact that we will make. Well, whatever the models that we will build in AI for different applications, 
and they bring in researchers and important actors in AI, in Mila, in Evado Labs, and Evado. They're really just coming in, explaining the impact of it, and that really changed our value inside the company. So I, I really like, you know, the, the I love the experience that we had in NextAI and putting the ethics in place. And again, it's always an ongoing conversation. So it's things, it's all about people and people change over time. So definitely we're part of that group and we continue working, collaborating with other people, sharing our experience and our point of view as well. Employer has a major role to play going forward in all of this. I mean, there's one thing from those that are involved in the AI production and, and, and looking at the moral and ethical component. But I think from an employer perspective, I mean, that upgrading of talent uh, or upgrading of skills and is even more important. And what kind of commitment employers are going to have. It's great to say we're going to bring in the technology. And, and, and we see it a lot in private industry where, you know, where you've got people that have been with you for 30, 35 years that are loyal their skill set, especially when it comes to technology, leave something to be desired. How do we get them to that next level? So this whole commitment, I, I think, has got to go way beyond uh, what you guys were talking about, Dan and Edward, and it's got to go back to the employers as we start looking to uh, implement some of these things. And what do we do with the people that are there? Can we upgrade skills? How do we do it? And and the worst part of all of this is, is many people don't know where to start. Many employers don't know where to start. They want to help upgrade skills. You know, what, the first thing they do is end up Googling, you know, who offers this course and that course. Is there anything within the uh, within the framework that, that is going to provide guidance going forward to uh, to corporate world? Oh, of course. There's a, there are many many classes uh, courses online courses that you can take uh, to to upskill your current resource. I would say for the management, definitely look at the HSC They have a lot of classes in AI introduction and how to use it, how to uh, improve productivity through the technology. Uh, I think there also there's a there's a really nice course in MIT for a certification of understanding AI at the commercial level rather than coding the AI. So for uh, commercial people like myself, you know, we don't need to code, but we need to really understand the impact and what can be, be done for the for the uh, for the enterprise. I would say that also, you know, you mentioned a good point earlier, Mike, you know, there are people that have a lot of experience in the enterprise, let's say 20, 30 years, and that's knowledge. But these boomers, they are going away, right? They will be retiring soon. So the new guys that comes in with a different, a fresh point of view using technology, you know, there's a huge gap between the experience versus tech. So I think, you know, we are technology is about it. it's a tool so we believe that we can be the tool to bridge between the new guys and the the old schools where they i think the experienced worker will implement their knowledge through business rules and workflows and wikis and all kinds of help menus to really guide these new guys how to use what is the industry experience that you need to acquire but the new the newcomers will bring in their fresh technological approach to solve low value problems. And I think this is the way to go. And to be frank, I've seen clients that they're going that way and these are the leaders of the industry. It's, you know, it, it's something that our industry is suffering from greatly right now is that, you know, we have a lot of uh, more senior uh, CPAs that are looking to retire. 
with a wealth of knowledge from, you know, 40, 35, 40, 50 years in the profession. Uh, and we are not capable of replacing them with as many people uh, at the early stages, A. But we are replacing them with technology skills. And, you know, obviously those older uh, professionals don't have the skills. There's got to – we have to find a way to bridge the gap between the knowledge-based industry, so accountants, lawyers, doctors, nurses, and the technology that's coming out with the younger professionals because there's not as much of a – I don't want to say as much, not as much of a desire, but in some cases not even as much of a need to have some of that professional base because the technology is replacing it. And, you know, how does that – move forward. I think of some of the manual things I did when I started out that created the base for years to come. Well, a lot of the newcomers in our profession are not facing those early challenges because technology is replacing it. Where do some of those skills get learned along the way? I think, you know, through our experience and the best projects that we have done were our clients and facing this exact problem about the, the bridge between the new guys and the, the, the wealth of experience is really use a good use of business analysts as a new role. So a senior business analyst will be able to break down the knowledge that the senior guys have into smaller pieces, easier to consume by the new guys and easier also consumed by the software, by the product, the technology, for example, and really slowly you know, educating the newer generation from the past, you know, learnings and mistakes and what to avoid. Uh, it, it's it's a role that is so critical that if I came back to the uh, the HSC, Ecole des Dirigeants, they have actually a class, you know, on how to reorganize the, your organization, including analysts, business analysts, to break down, you know, experience into technical requirements. I hope that helps. I got to hope at the end of the day that uh, people don't think judgment can be Googled. Well, me too. I hope so. And from what I see, uh, I, I do see a lot of the, the basic stuff in writing, like the low level turn and burn stuff that can be automated. We can automate wisdom, right? I mean, right, Edward, I mean, there's a certain amount of expertise, especially in, in logistics, that's going to be necessary for, for quite some time to come. No, nothing's going to replace uh, wisdom. It's going to take time for people to learn, but it's... Uh... It's part of the journey. It's not called artificial wisdom. <laughs> I hope ChatGPT doesn't take away that, for sure. Well, one last thing on, on government regulation. You mentioned this earlier, Mike. I, I want to end it here because I want to encourage entrepreneurs to, to think about AI ethics a little bit. Government is not regulating this, right, Edward? And not in any serious way. I mean, it seems the Canadian government is having trouble regulating social media, and that bill might be sent back from the Senate. So the idea that they're going to know what to do with products like Melly or other complicated AI is to me is off the table for the foreseeable future. So entrepreneurs like Edward have to take it upon themselves to, to create these codes of conduct, right? Yes, but I think the government is doing a much better job in the last, I would say, 18 months on this aspect. So uh, if we compare ourselves first to the European countries where they have the GPDR, that's something that we're implementing here. It's a similar um, you know, um, bill that we will have here in Canada. In Quebec, there was a Law 64 that is now transformed to Law 61, I believe. That's the, the that's also governing, you know, what the data privacy, data confidentiality, you know, development of AI. 
I think the framework is being, you know, built, created right now as we speak. I think things will roll out in the next 18 months. There are a lot of consoles as well, uh, consoles such as the CIO strategy console. There's a, a, other like AI, you know, uh, development console that really over oversight, you know, having an oversight on these uh, uh, bills and terms. So I truly believe that it's necessary for, uh, for these bills to be in place for to ensure a robust growth of this type of technology. It's just that it will take a little bit of time because the technology grew faster than these regulators can put bills in place. The skeptic in me hopes that the decisions being taken are the right ones and not political decisions at the end of the day. And I guess that's where, you know, the oversight of the oversight needs to come into play in all of this. There will be a balance that will be achieved over time, of course. We'll have his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in a moment, the co-founder of Melly AI, Transport AI Software. Uh, first, though, let's talk about something very important for all uh, business owners, that is estate planning. Amanda Curry is with us, Manager Estates and Trust at BDO Canada. Amanda, welcome back. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Excited to be back. And Mike, it is so important to tackle estate planning if you are a business owner. We never know what happens, right? So you have to have a backup plan in place. And especially uh, digitally often is becoming increasingly important. Uh, what will be one's digital legacy? And, and it's, I think it's a concept that, uh, you know, when, once Amanda explains it, it'll probably be pretty straightforward. But for a lot of us to sit back and look and read about digital legacy, I think there's a little bit of confusion. So Amanda, you might want to clarify that for us. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, today we are all so technological, um, maybe some more savvy than others. Um, but still, we are all at some level in that sphere in our day-to-day -day life, even no matter what age you are. And we live in such a cyberspace world. So when it becomes, it becomes very important to consider your digital legacy um, and how a surviving spouse and your children or even your liquidator will be able to deal with it. Uh, your existence in this digital world are things like your electronic documents, um, almost all paper-based documents, whether bank-related, tax-related, service providers. I mean, they're all online today and these institutions are even pushing for that digital footprint, you know? So even more so your emails, social media accounts, any domain names that you have. All these things are really important to organize so your family can access them, manage them, and not be caught in this sort of hard place where they have no access to such a huge part of your life. So you would have to consider all your digital assets, uh, how to access them, and that really needs to be documented and included as part of your will or even you know, a balance sheet that you prepare. Um, and what it comes down to here is realizing that with this expanding digital space and this rising need to protect online information, properly accounting for the entire picture of your digital presence is valuable. And it's very valuable for both like a personal and but also a financial perspective. This very clearly is not just related to, you know, somebody who's 75 years old looking to, you know, to create a will. This is obviously goes from anybody who's putting their legacy together and whether that's, you know, 30 years old making your first will to to somebody who's accumulated a significant wealth and setting things up. I mean, there's a there's a basis for all of this. But 
I think as you move forward and, and, and we get, we're starting to see a lot more people now who are debating whether they should start giving away some of their assets during their lifetime vis-a-vis -vis the traditional way, which was to give it away in the will. What, what are you seeing and, and, and how is this affecting some of the work that you're doing? Well, I, I think before embarking on any decision um, about the timing uh, of when you're going to be passing your wealth or let's say your patrimony down, um, either during your lifetime or at death, or even a combination of both, actually, um, it's it's crucial to first assess. And this is what we always want people to do, to assess first and consider your personal financial situation. You know, try and think about your future potential needs um, and identify, really identify the type of lifestyle that you would want to live, let's say, in your retirement or even post, like post-retirement. Uh, you should be taking um, taking account of all your sources of income and assets and then comparing all that with your objectives for your future and always taking into account your maximum long-term needs. You know, many people feel strongly, I think, about helping the younger generations in their family and being around to see those benefits of their gifts. Um, and even for some, they hope to see their younger generations maybe start achieving their ambitions sooner um, or be able to enjoy and use the assets more immediately. And all that is really important to a lot of people. And that's why if a comprehensive estate plan is thoroughly prepared and, and, and even reviewed every so often, it can really help provide some insight into you having the option to do just that, giving away your wealth while you are still alive. I can't emphasize enough that you're not referring here to somebody sitting on their deathbed. You are talking about people that are giving away wealth and, and, and assets strategically over the course of uh, over their life. Yeah, definitely. It's, 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 I think the key word here is just being proactive throughout your life. Like it's, it's important to ask yourself a range of questions while you're doing so, while you're preparing these plans and, 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 and focus on that and really sit down with your plans and see what's going to be best for everyone in your family, yes, but also for yourself later on. You don't ever want to put yourself in a place where you gave away too much and you didn't think about your personal needs later on either. Going to get it back afterwards? <laughs> no. Amanda Curry, Manager, Estates and Trust at BDO Canada. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, guys. And now as we come to the end of our show, we turn to our entrepreneur, Edward Coe, and we ask him, Edward, for your one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. What do you think? Be passionate. That's the first thing that I would encourage the entrepreneurs. If you're not passionate about the problem, if you're not waking up, be excited about the problem, this is not for you. But then along the, 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 the way, be persistent, resilient. There'll be a lot of no's, a lot of challenge ahead. It's You have to put a hard work. It's not a freebie to start a company, to become an entrepreneur, and you have to be ready for that. Uh, and the last thing I want to give is that you have to surround yourself with a strong network of coaches, advisors. There's a lot of people there that are willing to help you and answering questions, providing guidance to your journey. We don't know everything and we need help on different aspects. So don't be shy. Ask the question and ask for help for it. Thanks so much, Edward. Edward Coe, Melly AI, and Mike, another entrepreneur who's geared towards problem solving and, uh, you know, thinking back to the times where I remember making a mistake on a bill of lading and a trucker sitting and idling and wasting the fuel, and I felt bad about that, and Edward's gone a long way to solve those problems. Technology, once again, is moving forward, and the, and the key is the whole ethical discussion of how we're going to use it. But, you know, Edward, it's almost like you and I planned this, because if you were to ask me my top three uh, needs for success, it's 
number one without uh, fail is passion. Number two is execution. And number three is that whole mindfulness and, and looking at your surroundings and understanding the people around you. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I could say that your, your, your three points were fabulous, but that would be self-serving to a certain degree. But, hey, what do you want me to say? <laughs> Well, I hope we're connected, Mike. You got it. You got it. Uh, great having you. Thank you so much for today. Thanks very much, Edward. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mike, for having me on the show. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple, or your favorite platform. And you can log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles dating back to 2009. See you back here next week. Talk.